desire is really linked with our pleasure centers of the brain. And a lot of people think it's like, oh, one hit of dopamine and then it's going to propel me to go and do whatever. But it's really more of like a three-part system that we see. It's the wanting, the liking, and the learning. There's also another way of looking at it, the experiencing, the expecting, the expectation. Suddenly we start paying attention to things that feel important that are activating our arousals. So that's not just sex related, that is just pleasure related. Today I'm talking nerdy and talking dirty about pleasure, desire, and sexuality with Courtney Boyer. In this conversation, Courtney and I dive into why people, and especially women, experience low or no sexual desire, how desire changes over the course of our lives and relationships, the brain systems associated with creating pleasure, how to rekindle desire when it feels like it's been lost, and the biological and psychological reasons why you should be creating more space for pleasure in your life. Courtney Boyer is a relationship and sexuality expert and the author of Not Tonight, Honey, Why Women Actually Don't Want Sex and What We Can Do About It. She has been featured in publications including Parents, Cosmopolitan, The Independent, and The Mirror. Courtney holds a master's in education and human sexuality, a master's in mental health counseling, and is also a certified life coach. She is trained in a myriad of evidence-based methods, including NLP, EMDR, IFS, and trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Before you dive in, I would love if you could hit pause and leave us a five-star review and a written review on whatever platform you're listening on. In doing so, you help get this podcast into the ears and brains of more listeners like you. Now let's dive in and start talking nerdy. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney Boyer. I am so excited to have you on here talking nerdy to me. You came highly recommended to me by Ashley Weller, the host of What's Your Position podcast. She mentioned that she recently interviewed you, and as soon as she did, she reached out to me after and was like, Alex, you need to have Courtney come on, talk nerdy to me. So I am so thrilled to have you here. Thank you for joining me in today's episode. Thank you, Alex. I'm so excited to be here. Yay! So I guess the best place to begin would be by asking you how you got started in the world of educating people on relationships, sex, sexuality, desire, and pleasure. Where did it all get started for you? Uh, so I grew up in the evangelical Christian church and in a very conservative Christian household where we didn't talk about sex. And if people around us were talking about sex, it was usually whispers about people who were engaging in premarital sex and how terrible that was and sinful. And basically sex was dirty, save it for someone you loved when you got married. And so I had that mentality going into college. I went to a Christian college and was the first time I was really exposed to people who had different beliefs than I did and uh, ended up reading the women's room when I was a pre-law major and it totally changed my life. And I really started to see uh, how unhappy women were in sexual relationships and marriage. And I just wanted to do something about it. So I told my parents, I don't want to be a lawyer. I actually want to study sex. <laughs> and so uh, I went and got a master's in education and human sexuality and worked as a sexuality educator for a little while. Uh, I worked with a lot of marginalized populations because a lot of states, 
at least the state I was in in Indiana, it was an abstinence only state. And so I wasn't allowed to go into the schools. So I would go into juvenile detention centers, would go into more progressive churches, those kind of things. And people would come up to me afterwards and ask me questions like, is this normal? What's wrong with me? And I didn't have a good answer. So I was like, you know, I'm going to go back to school again. So I went back, got a master's in mental health counseling and decided to open up a mental health and sex therapy practice and did that for a little while. My husband moves a lot with his job. So that prevented me from really establishing practices and state licensure laws are kind of a pain. So I switched over to the coaching model and started working as a coach and loved that and then decided to write a book because I felt like that was the next step in terms of putting some tangible tools in people's hands and helping them to understand why they may feel sexually broken or like there's something wrong with them. Amazing. What's the name of your book? It's called Not Tonight, Honey, Why Women Actually Don't Want Sex and What We Can Do About It. Amazing. And is that the issue that most of your clients are coming to you with? Usually clients come to me with just kind of like an overall dissatisfaction. They're usually really successful on paper. And when I say successful, I know your audience can't see me, but I've got like air quotes because I think success is super subjective. And so they make really great money. They've got all the titles, beautiful houses, beautiful families, and yet they're really unfulfilled in their relationship. A lot of them are in sexless marriages. And so they come to me just because they don't know what else to do and they feel like they've they've done it all and they're still unhappy. And so we, we tackle the issues that they're facing. Something that has come up in conversation with me and a few of my girlfriends is the definition of a sexless marriage, because I think it's a little different than what most of us assume. Can you break that down a little bit more for listeners, what that might entail? Yeah. So the term sexless marriage is also very subjective. For most people, that means not engaging in coitus or intercourse. Usually the statistics that I've seen are it's about one in five marriages are sexless, but that includes all married from like age, I don't know, 18 to 95. So being aware that the statistic is a bit skewed because as we age, typically sexual intimacy drops off. So that's just kind of a natural course. That's for a variety of reasons. But sexless could be a lack of affection. So it does, it, you could be technically having coitus intercourse, but maybe you're not orgasming or you're not getting pleasure from that experience. So I'd say that a lot of people are in unhappy sexual relationships, monogamous long-term sexual relationships. Why do you think that is? Do you think that it's a function of the nature of desire changing over the course of our relationship or more of a result of the nature of desire changing over the course of our lives as we age and get older? Where do you think it comes from? I think it comes from a variety of things. Yes. Yes to both of your questions. Uh, you know, as we age, we don't see the aged. And that number is incredibly, like there's no magic number. But I was reading this, I think it was on Instagram, that she's some British actress or whatever was being criticized because she was, quote, dressing like a teenager. And she's beautiful. And she's got a gorgeous body. And people were criticizing her because she was being too sexual for being 52, I think, is how old she was. And so the aged, whatever, I'm 40, so technically I could be considered old, are not considered sexual. We're not allowed to be sexual. And so it's really the young, the fertile, and the mobile are the ones that are celebrated. And mobile meaning people without disabilities or different abilities. So people who are healthy, attractive, uh, fertile, those people are allowed to be 
sexual. And then everyone who's kind of outside of those limits, not only is it not celebrated, but it's not talked about. So I think that that's one factor that contributes to that. We receive these messages and we internalize that. Then like, I'm not supposed to be that way. So then I'm going to show up like people expect me to, which is not sexual and not being desirable and not having desire. I think people who are in, you know, long-term relationships, it's super normal for desire to, you know, wax and wane depending on stage of life, including, you know, becoming a parent, kids leaving the house, your own aging parents. There are so many different factors that contribute to waning and waxing desire that we don't really talk about. And it's just kind of becomes this forgotten thing that nobody really addresses. And then we wonder like, wow, we haven't had sex in like three weeks. I don't really think about sex. I don't really need sex. And I'm not really going to deal with it because I've got like 12 other things on my to-do list that takes priority over it. So I'm curious if you personally think that that may be problematic for people because it sounds like some individuals when they're in that situation where it's not at the top of the priority list may not even see it as problematic that they don't want to have sex anymore. Let me say it this way. I'm less concerned with people prioritizing sex and more concerned with them prioritizing pleasure. Because I think that especially for women, we have become so disconnected from what brings us pleasure. And for a lot of women, like, holy cow, we can experience some real great pleasure in our bodies, whether that's sexual or otherwise. But we we are so out here with the things that we feel like we're supposed to do with obligations, with societal guilt, with these roles that are put on us, roles that we step into. And so we bump pleasure down the list. And a lot of times that sex is a part of that. One of the pieces of research I was reading earlier on this year was on nitric oxide and the role that, that plays in facilitating greater levels of synaptic signaling and so increasing our ability to experience neuroplasticity and change and rewire our brains as well as experience all of these other amazing health benefits and nitric oxide is a neurotransmitter that our brains release when we have orgasms and when we're having sex but it's also something that we release anytime we experience pleasure whether it's listening to music we really love or eating a really enjoyable meal and it seems like this is something on a biological level, that's essential for us to not only experience physical health, but also experience brains and nervous systems that are malleable, that don't just get stuck in the same kind of patterns of doing and being. So I'm curious if you can tell us from maybe a nervous system perspective, where exactly is desire coming from in our bodies? Like what is the biological compulsion that would either compel us to experience pleasure or to turn that off in ourselves? Yeah, gosh, that's a complicated answer. I, I know your listeners couldn't see you were talking about nitric oxide. I was getting so excited because yes, that is something that can be built, like really like built up when you are in the arousal phase of, of intercourse or sex or any type of even just self-stimulation. A lot of times people will masturbate or, you know, engage in sex with a partner with the goal of, I want to get off. I want to have an orgasm. But what is so fascinating to me is the health benefits that come during that arousal period. And when you are in that stimulation phase, you are building up so much of that nitric oxide. And so the longer you engage in that, 
like even if you're doing this by yourself oh man just keep going girl like like don't do 10 minutes like give me 20 because the benefits are just so much better when you can build up that nitric oxide basically talk nerdy to me homework assignment for this episode more foreplay yes more foreplay with yourself or with your partner because holy cow it's really good for your health okay like that's just the bottom line on so many levels so back to your question about the brain you know desire is really linked with our pleasure centers of the brain and a lot of people think it's like oh one hit of dopamine and then it's going to propel me to go and do whatever but it's really more of like a three-part system that we see it's the wanting the liking in the learning, there's also another way of looking at it, the experiencing, the expecting, the expectation. But it's essentially the same thing where you have this activity that's happening in the brain from the dopamine, and that goes and releases a powerful neuromodulated dopamine. And from there, in the nucleus acumen, and we're not really sure why that happens there, But all we know is that suddenly we start paying attention to things that feel important that are activating our arousal system. So that's not just sex related. That is just pleasure related. So we know that that's happening in one part of our brain. Then it activates the memory part of our brain because it's like, hey, I've been here before. I know that this kiss could lead to really great touching, which leads to really great sex, which leads to an orgasm. And that feels really, really good. And so then the third part then is that expectation going forward of having that happen in forthcoming experiences. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. It's really not like a just fix one part. Like, oh, if you just dangle something, you know, sexual in front of you, like, great, that'll turn you on. Like, it's it's so much more realizing that all three of these things are playing together. Yes, the dopamine is that reward neurotransmitter that is you know people are often a big fan of but yeah it's much more complicated when people are trying to do like these quick fixes because they don't realize how intertwined this system is what are some of the quick fixes that you think trip people up or make it a lot worse so this is where i really like personally struggle sometimes like when i'm on instagram and i see some of these people who are like Oh, just like go out and like buy this like sexy outfit. And then like my husband was so turned on and then that turned me on. And I'm like, okay, nope, that's a quick fix. You are trying to use lingerie or toys or a weekend getaway to put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. And I know that that sounds extreme, but for so many of the people out there, and I know this because I've talked with thousands of them, especially women, the issue is so much deeper than needing a sex toy or like just getting away there is unresolved trauma there is you know decades of micro and macro messaging telling women that they're too much or too little or too skinny or too sexual you know religious shame and guilt freaking getting a a sex blanket is not going to solve that problem like yes can i put out for the night get off and get my partner off Sure, yes, but that will not solve the systemic issue that is the low desire that so many women are facing. What do you think is the first step for women who are wanting to actually get to the root of the problem and heal that gaping wound from like the deepest level 
rather than just kind of glossing over the surface with some neosporin. I know that that seems like really dramatic, but it is like we we don't realize like how deep it is and how hard it is for so many women to really just get in the mood. And I think that I get really frustrated when that's the message, like have a glass of wine, just relax, stop being so uptight and eventually it'll it'll work out for you. And so I really, really want women to understand that if they've tried those things and they still feel stuck, it's not their fault. I hope that this conversation really helps them to understand that I've tried those things and I still feel low desire or I still feel stuck or I still feel uninterested. You're not alone. That's totally normal. So to answer your question, I think the first thing, the first thing is one, to have awareness of where they're at in their desire journey kind of like tracking, like, okay, so how long have I really been uninterested in sex or sexuality? Or how long have I really felt disconnected from my body? And again, this is super important to come from a place of curiosity and not judgment. So it's not like, okay, great. Like, I get to sit here and evaluate like how crappy I am of a partner I never want to put out. Like, that's absolutely not what we're doing here. It is really just a, a self-awareness of like, okay, so I realized after my last kid, I t- my my interest in sex totally nosedived. Awesome. Okay, so we got a starting point at least. So then we can kind of have like a before and after picture. For some people, it goes much farther than that. So that's essentially kind of step number one. Step number two is giving yourself permission. And this is, oh my gosh, one of the most important parts is giving yourself permission to change. And that seems kind of silly. Like, well, of course I want to change, Courtney. Why do I need to give myself permission? I've done this work with so many women and they struggle with giving themselves permission to believe that they are deserving of pleasure. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's the messaging that we get that sex is more for men than women? And we, because we've been conditioned our whole lives to be human givers, that we give and we are here for other people's pleasure, convenience, desires, needs. The martyred mom is a perfect example of that. Like she sacrifices everything for everyone and her needs are at the very, very bottom. And that's just, that's celebrated. When I was a a mom, like a first time mom 15 years ago, I remember the worst thing I felt like I could be called was selfish because that means I'm not putting everybody else's needs before me. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm a bad mom and I'm a bad wife. But do you know what that led to? That led to burnout and exhaustion and resentment and depression and anxiety. That wasn't a fulfilled life. That was being a doormat so that I looked good for other people and didn't get my needs met. So when it comes to the point where somebody is actually able to give themselves permission to change, what do you use as the barometer for what a healthy level of desire is? Is it looking at that before point, like before I had the kid or before this major conflict within the relationship or before this major traumatic event happened? Or is there a new normal that we're ultimately aiming towards? I love the new normal. So I'm a big fan of using kind of the past as indicators and evidence to kind of guide us. You know, like I I have some women who are like, man, I used to have sex all the time in my 20s and I loved it and I have other women who are like I I had a lot of sex and I hated it so it's really more about getting them to a point where they feel connected with their bodies they feel connected to their desire 
and that they're at a place where they can consistently prioritize pleasure. And depending on where they're at in that phase of life will look different for different people. So my goal is to help them to create something that's sustainable, that leads to a more fulfilled and fulfilling life. The first point that you made there was connecting back to our bodies. And that's something that I've heard you mention a few times now in the episode. And I'm curious if you can give some examples of how women can know when they are or are not connected with their own bodies. So a great example of like not being connected to your body is doing the dishes. So a lot of times, especially if you are a mom, you will be thinking about 25 other things and you'll be on autopilot and you are just doing the dishes. You're not feeling the warm, the warm water or the soapy suds on your fingers. You're not typically smelling some of the food that's still left on the plates. You are just going through your to-do list, reviewing things, anticipating things. You're not present in your body. That's just one that comes to the top of my head. People who have been survivors of sexual abuse, a lot of times during sexual encounters, they will disassociate and dis- disembody so that they don't feel unsafe, so that they can like mentally preserve. And if people have been through that experience, they know what that's like. So when you embody, when you are present in your body, you are connected with your senses. So you feel that warm water on your fingers or when you are eating, this is a great example, you are eating, you are savoring the flavor of that food that is in your mouth. You are paying attention to your jaw moving up and masticating. You are paying attention to the, the olfactory activation, the, the smells that are coming in. You're listening. Maybe you're at the kitchen table. Maybe you're at a beautiful restaurant. Taking that all in and allowing your body and mind to process that. Okay, so it's ultimately the act of being fully present with the sensory experiences of this moment. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. My next question is about the second piece, which was being connected to our desire. And I think a big question that comes up for a lot of women that I talk to is, like, how do I even know what I want? And I'm curious in your words, what is desire and how do women reconnect themselves to it or connect themselves to it for the very first time if they've lived a life that has been fully disconnected. It's funny because a lot of times when I'm sitting with clients and I actually talk about this in the book, I'll ask them, what do you do for fun? And like nine times out of 10, they'll laugh at me. I don't have time for fun, Courtney. Or I'll say, if you could pick any place to go to for dinner tonight, where would you go? And they're like, I don't understand your question. (laughs) And, And I know that sounds like silly examples, but they don't know those basic things because we haven't been taught how to prioritize them. So those are pleasure. And a lot of times pleasure is seen as a distraction or as a reward. It is not the path. And that is something that I try to help my clients do is to get on the path of pleasure because I fully believe that a pleasured woman is a powerful woman and powerful women can change the world. And so women who are connected to the things that they find desirous, they are able to tune into that pleasure so much faster. So back to your question, how do women who've never done that, first, they give themselves permission and say, I deserve to figure out what it is that I desire. One of the easy ways to do this 
is to start to think of things you don't desire. I usually don't love doing this exercise because I find that when we focus on things that we don't want, then that's easy to do. And then we get stuck in this negative loop. But sometimes that's the starting point that we have is we're like, okay, what's your favorite kind of flower? Well, I don't know. Okay, well, let's go through the ones you don't like. I don't like roses. I don't like lilies. I don't like blah, blah, blah. Okay, this is what's left. So kind of like picking from there. So that's kind of one way to step into it is thinking like, okay, these are things I don't enjoy. Do I like the opposite of that? Maybe, maybe not. Another way to do this is to just be still with yourself. And this can be really scary for a lot of people because we are in such a society that bombards us with our attention and filling our heads with things all of the time. Even if we're not watching something or scrolling something, even when we're just sitting there, we're we're replaying events from the past. We're anticipating things from the future. So allowing ourselves to just sit in silence for five, 10 minutes every day and just ask ourselves, what do I want? What makes me happy? What was the last thing that made me really smile? And we just sit and close our eyes in total silence and we see what comes up. And you'd be surprised when you give the brain a, a task it wants to give you that results. It's a computer, right? It, you put in an inquiry and a lot of times it will spit out what you want. We just usually aren't patient enough to sit and really receive the facts or the whatever that comes in. That's really, really helpful. I guess my next question is about how to accept and receive whatever the output is of that inquiry that we're giving to the brain. I, for example, grew up in a very Catholic household and went to Catholic school as well. So there was a lot of religious conditioning and programming that I had to sift through as well when I got started on my journey too. And I know that when the desire would come up, there would be a lot of shame around even wanting it. When the space has been cleared, when the stillness has been created, how can we learn to be in greater acceptance of what is coming up for us, especially when there's a feeling of, is this wrong? Is this bad? Is this, you know, whatever it may be. One of the things that I truly, truly believe is that every person's desire is destined for them. So there's a reason you have that desire. So my husband loves to do torturous things like ruck for 100 miles. I think that is insane. But for whatever reason, he has this desire inside of him to go and ruck, which means putting a backpack on with a whole bunch of weights in it and walk for 100 miles. This event in the Netherlands is called the Nijmegen. And he, he did it. He, he had that desire because that was meant for him. I do not have the desire. I will not be doing those things. That is not destined for me. Because I know that's kind of a silly example. But when we really start to accept the things that are in our hearts and that are really propelling us towards the, our purpose, we have to embrace them. Because what I see happen is that people resist the things that are meant for them, they resist relationships or jobs or callings or whatever it is. And then they get stuck. And that's when they are drained. And that's when they get sick. And that's when they are in this cycle of despair and loneliness and frustration because they didn't listen to that longing and that desire. When that desire is in conflict with other people's expectations, and that can include religion, it can include your family, it can include your partner, it becomes really problematic because then what you feel like you have to do is go against your tribe, is go against the people that are most important to you 
And that at a biological level is really threatening. And so you don't want to do that. You don't want to be excommunicated from the tribe. So you squash your dreams and your desires and you do whatever it is that feels is safe within the community so that you don't get excommunicated and you don't die. Even though we know we can live, our brain is still very primitive in that way. That is also really, really helpful to hear and brings up yet another question for me is how do we navigate working through and fulfilling desire when there's another person involved as there is in romantic relationships and sexual relationships, especially over the long term when there's a discrepancy in libido or a discrepancy in desire. And I'm not just talking about when women don't feel turned on and aren't feeling like they are desiring sex. But this is something that I've talked to a lot of women about where the opposite occurs too, where in heteronormative relationships where their partners don't have as much desire as they do. How can we manage the discrepancy? find that especially for really type A women too. I have found that a lot of them desire sex or more than their partner typically. And that holds up a whole other host of insecurities and issues. But to focus on answering that question of yours, that requires a bigger relationship conversation. And so I think that what a lot of traditional marriage or relationship therapists will do is the person with the lowest desire wins. Higher desire person, you got to suck it up. And if the lower desire person is not willing to quote up their game, that's terrible to say, that you're going to have to figure out a different way, basically masturbate or ignore your desire until that person is ready to receive you sexually, which I think is incredibly problematic and lead to a lot of resentment. So what I like to discuss with, you know, my couples when I work with them is, you know, what is the goal of this relationship? Is the goal to be the best version of ourselves? Is it to raise children? Is it to have somebody to grow old with, you know, what are the goals? And then examining those insecurities, examining the relationship discrepancies, you know, like, man, I love going hiking and my wife hates it. So what would most people say? Your wife doesn't have to go hiking with you. Great. And so they'd say, but I don't want to go alone. So what would you say to them? Find someone else to go with. Find somebody else to go with them. That's right. So we do that in every other area of relationships except for sex. And this is where I see the conversation around open relationships, non-monogamy have really started to emerge because people realize that they don't want to be in a quote sexless or a sexually incompatible relationship for 50 years, but they really value their partner on every other level. And they don't want to lose that relationship, but they also feel like they are suffocating sexually And so it's one of the big components that leads to cheating is that you have a need not being met and you're too scared to risk the whole relationship. So you go unethically, essentially, and get that need met by someone else and then pray that your partner doesn't find out. So what I encourage couples to do when they're really at this point where it feels like everything else feels super strong but there's just this major sexual compatibility is to discuss what would it look like if we outsourced or if we opened or we manage this in a non-traditional manner. And then we go from there. What if 
they didn't want to? Would they just be at the mercy of discrepancies and sexual incompatibility in that regard? Or is there a way that it can be worked on from there so that the lower desired partner can amplify and turn up the volume on theirs? Is that even an option or a possibility? Oh, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of things that if we can examine what is causing the low desire partner's low desire, a lot of times there are smaller fixes like that can even move up that thermostat essentially by 10 to 20 degrees. If you're wanting like a 60 degree increase in temperature, that might require some more intensity and may just not be possible. But absolutely. My question though, and what I see a lot of times is if we know that there's a need that our partner has and we have no desire to meet it, to make changes in ourselves to meet them, because that's what we want to do, not because that's what we feel like we have to do, then why do we limit their ability to go and get that need met? What ends up happening is that we hold them hostage. And to me, that's a form of control. And I do not believe that love is control. That's really, really powerful. And I think a very alternative perspective on non-monogamy and polyamory than what is currently out there. And I know that there are a lot of other people in the podcast world, like Aubrey Marcus, who are talking about experiences with polyamory and ethical non-monogamy and sharing some very different things. But what you're saying, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, over the course of a relationship, what are some of the very typical patterns of change that we see in desire, both in the individual as well as within the container of the relationship between the two people? Can we expect kind of the same thing over time? Yeah, I think there's a misconception that that there is a norm. You know, most people have just accepted it's really intense in the beginning and then it fizzles out every once in a while, like there'll be like a spark and then it just completely fades out. And that's really the longevity of your sex life. And I don't think that has to be it. I have more sex now at 40 than I had when I was in my 20s. And, you know, that is for a variety of reasons. But the biggest reason is because I'm committed to prioritizing my pleasure. And when I was in my 20s, I wasn't. I was at the whim of other people and it wasn't very fun. And this was just not an enjoyable thing. And and there's the guilt and all of that. And so I think that you can create whatever kind of sex life that you want. Yes, there are external factors that will make it easier or more difficult for you to have desire or have opportunity. It's a big thing. Like I was on a cruise with my husband and my kids uh, last month. We're in a freaking tiny room. Like the opportunity to have sex is just very difficult compared to when we're at home and we have more of a routine. So, you know, if I look at my sex life for the year and those numbers dropped because I was on vacation with my family, it's not because I didn't have the desire. It's because I lacked the opportunity. You know, that's also something to keep in mind when we're looking at behavior. So, yes, it is super normal to in the beginning, your brain is just like on crack, essentially, like it is flooded with all that good dopamine and like, oh, girl, yes, give me some all that time. Right. But that's not sustainable. And so what happens is relationships typically around the two to three year mark. They, they're not great about transitioning from the romantic period to the sustained long-term period. Another thing that I think is important to pay attention to is that historically, most people have been in the same city, in the same area when they've dated. And because of technology and traveling and the ability to be in Bermuda or you know Bali to work and 
have a partner in Seattle, that means that you're not there with them all of the time. So that relationship isn't your typical, yep, we're going to go see each other four days a week and we're going to go out Friday and Saturday night and spend a lot of time together. Maybe I see them once a month. Maybe I see them three times a year. Relationships are so different than how they've been historically in terms of structure, face-to-face time, amount of partners in a, in a relationship. Like it's, it's hard to really answer your question in terms of normal. I guess that would be the answer is that they're creating, especially, you know, the Gen Zers are really creating a new normal when it comes to relationships. That's super, super interesting. And then in the course of an individual's life, what are some of the things that we can expect in terms of our sexual desire changing from the time that we are teenagers up until we're in our 80s, 90s? I mean, we know that as teenagers are going through puberty, their brain is just like flooded with all of these hormones. And it's like, what's going on? What's going on? Like it's an overwhelmingness of desire and flooding of testosterone and estrogen and progesterone, like all of these things. And as we hit, you know, our early 20s, sometimes, you know, late teens, those start to more even out and level out. But then as women start to conceive and go through pregnancies, that affects their desire. And as we age and get closer to menopause, our estrogen levels, our progesterone, testosterone, those start to drop and drop and drop. And then we can't ignore the hormonal impact on sexual desire. Just like, you know, a woman who's 30 and she's menstruates normally every, you know, 20 to 30 days, she's going to fluctuate within that 30 day cycle. That follicular phase, that phase right after you menstruate, hot damn, that girl, turn it on because that is like, that is your sweet spot. If you were in a partnership with a female who menstruates, track her cycle because you will know typically when she is real horny or can be. And that's normal, right? Because we see a spike in estrogen levels after menstruation, after bleeding. After ovulation hits, that estrogen level starts to drop. And a lot of times desire starts to drop with it. It's not anything wrong with you. It is normal. But again, being aware of your physical, hormonal, environmental factors of your desire is super important. Absolutely. In one of the previous episodes with Bindi Stables, we talk about the impact of hormones on cognitive health. And we call that follicular phase, the Beyonce phase. (laughs) Oh, it's the best the Beyonce. I love that. I'm using that from now on. It feels so good. And then we were talking about the menstrual phase is like the monster phase where I text everyone and I'm like, I am a demon. Yesterday, I was right at the end of my cycle and I was like, I don't see the point in anything. And my husband's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I know it's just my cycle talking, but I'm not really feeling it today. <laughs> so insane. Oh, that's so funny. But yeah, I love that advice. Track your partner's cycle. If you are not menstruating, but you're in a relationship with somebody who is, track them. I love it. Yes. So what are some of the things that are most pleasurable for you? I know that's a question you love to ask your clients, so I'd love to ask it back. Ooh this like oh my gosh like this is so pleasurable for me having conversations that are really about elevating women's awareness elevating education around sexuality and desire and pleasure it just fills me with so much joy i don't even i can't even explain it coffee in the morning like a really great cup of coffee is so pleasurable to me a glass of red French wine, just 
ah, oh, the best, like a first kiss, like a really great first kiss. Ah, oh, I can just like feel it on my lips. That's the best. So those are some of the things that bring me pleasure. I love it. Those are some of my favorite things too. Thank you so, so much for sharing. So I know that after listening to all of this, there are definitely going to be some listeners who are wanting to A, read your book, which I'm going to leave a link to in the show notes, but B, also going to want to learn more about you and from you. So anything that you hear right now is going to be in the show notes, but where is the best place for people to learn more about you and from you? The best place is uh, Instagram or LinkedIn, and both of those are at Courtney Boyer Coaching, and then also my website, uh, CourtneyBoyerCoaching.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Courtney. Do you have anything coming up that listeners should know about in terms of coaching opportunities with you or any programs that you're facilitating? Yes. So I'm working on organizing what's called a sexual empowerment weekend. So this is an opportunity to work with me. I'm going to offer both one-on-one, which is like an intensive, and then also in the small groups so that women who come together for the small groups once for a weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday is how we'll start. And we just deep dive into a lot of the things that we talked about here. So women who are feeling sexually broken, feeling like there's something wrong with them, we will, they will walk away feeling, you know, educated, empowered, and really have a plan for, okay, like I know how to reclaim my sexuality and feel a little bit more connected to my body. So I'm super excited to be offering those. So those will be coming I'll roll that out in Europe likely first because that's where I am. And then later next year, I'll have opportunities come up in the States. I love it. I want to come. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes, please. I love it. And and that's the thing too. Like if you have a group of friends that you're like, yes, let's do a, an intentional girls weekend where we bring, bring me in and I facilitate the whole thing and this program where we go through all of this. Send me a message. Let's make it happen. (laughs) That sounds like a dream. And do you have any final words of wisdom that you'd like to share with listeners before we begin to close out? I know I said this before, but the biggest takeaway that I hope anyone listening, it's like you are so deserving of good things. Please, please believe that. And really the best way that you can live an intentional life is to live one that's filled with pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today, Courtney. I'm so, so grateful for your wisdom and expertise. And thanks for talking nerdy to me. Thank you. I loved it. Thank you so much. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears and brains of more listeners like you by sharing it on social media. When you share on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Alex underscore Nashton. Instagram is also the best place to send me your questions about the episode material and make requests for future topics and guests. New episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me drop every single Wednesday. When you hit subscribe, you'll be notified of new releases so you never have to miss one. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.